Thanks for joining us. The following is a presentation of Ignite Global Ministries and features the teaching of Pastor Ben Dixon. Pastor Ben has a vision of strengthening the church to impact the world. He serves as lead pastor at Northwest Foursquare Church in Federal Way, Washington. My name is Ben Dixon. I serve as the lead pastor of Northwest Church and the director of Ignite Global Ministries. And this is The Daily Word. We're here Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. Many of you join us already. If you'd like to share this stream or even like it, it helps other people to join us to see what we're doing. And we want to continue to invite as many people in here as we possibly can. Why? Because we want to go through the Bible in a, in a once-a-year fashion. That's what we're doing. We're taking select passages of daily Bible reading, and we're making observations of the Scripture. What better thing could we do to start our day than to look at the Word, observe the Word, and then ask God by His Holy Spirit to help us live the Word? That's what we're doing, and so we want people to join us. If you don't have the daily Bible reading plan that we're using, you can email us. That's ben at nwcfoursquare.org, and we would be glad to send you that so that you can follow along. Whether we're doing this or not, we can simply be reading the Bible together, observing the Bible together, interpreting the Word, and also applying it. So today we are looking at Joshua chapter 23 and 24, and we are also looking at Colossians chapter uh, 1. And I want to, uh, in Joshua chapter 23, sorry, I want to go ahead and just summarize what's been happening so we get sort of a snapshot. If you uh, if you have a Bible that has the subsections and it, it reads out various statements that cover the summary of that chapter, you'll notice that this chapter says Joshua's farewell address. And that's actually what this really is. Joshua brings the people of Israel together. This is after they have allotted and divided all the land among the tribes of Israel. And it says that he has increased in age. He's an old man at this point. He knows that he's going to die at some point very soon. And so he gives them this final address before he, the Bible says he goes the way of the earth. And I find it interesting in Joshua chapter 23, the things that he says. And I just pulled out some principles. And I just want to bullet point them to you. And we're reading here in verse 3 and 4, Joshua basically reminds them of the faithfulness of God. Now that he's old in age, he says, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations. Uh, for the Lord your God, he, he is the one who has been fighting for you. So here they have dispossessed the land. Now they're inheriting the land. They're settling into the land. They have peace on all their borders. And Joshua says, God's the one that was fighting for you. God's the one that fulfilled his promise to you. And he is faithful to his word. We read about that in verse 6. And he goes on to say in verse 6 and following that we, or Israel, needs to be firm in being faithful to God by following his word and obeying his voice. They have to listen to these things that God is telling them. And so intermarrying at that time would cause them to have their hearts divided. We see that actually in Solomon's life. When we get there in the scripture, we'll see that very, very clearly. And so it wasn't about uh, it wasn't racist or racial. We've got to remember what God was actually doing in fulfilling his word, that Jesus would come through the tribe of Judah. Jesus was a Jew. And, and we'll get there uh, when we do as we follow the scripture. And so it's important 
God's mandate for them was not to worship other gods. If they worship other gods, they would destroy their people. When we get to Judges, we're going to see that's exactly what happens. In fact, he warns them of that in Joshua chapter 24. He gives a final warning here in Joshua 23, verse 14 through 16. And he tells them what's going to happen to them if they not only intermarry, but they worship the other gods of the Canaanites. And this is very, very serious to transgress the covenant that Yahweh gave to his people. We open up then Joshua chapter 24. And for the first 13 verses, he actually reviews Israel's history. He starts with Abraham and he goes all the way down to where they are in that day. And and he wants to remind them of where they come from. Friends, I want you to know where you come from and how important that it is that you're living in this moment. And maybe just as a principle, we could also be reminded that we are standing on history. And as a result of that, we have to have the fear of God, knowing that the Lord has done so much in times past to get us to the point that we are today. Now, how should we live knowing that many people have given their lives for Jesus? Many people have given their lives so that we could have the scripture. Many people have gone before us and lived a life worthy of the calling for which they receive. We stand on their shoulders and we stand in a moment of history. And that's what we want to actually take away from this passage ourselves. This is what Joshua wanted the Israelites who have been settled now into into the land with peace on their borders. He wanted them to understand, you guys in this moment have got to remember how much has happened to get you to where you are today. It's so easy for us to forget where we come from. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 14 through 28, not only does he review their history, but he comes to the end of all that to make some conclusive statements about himself. And this is the famous statement, of course, uh, that I want to read to you. And you've heard this before. It's where Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I'll go ahead and read to you in verse 14, Joshua 24. He says, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord, serve Yahweh. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers, uh, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We've heard this. Maybe we've seen this. Some people have it written in their home or they have some kind of plaque somewhere in their household. I've seen this a lot. But the truth of it is what we're after. Not just the statement, but the truth that is behind it. Joshua is about to die at some point here. And he's saying, this is the stand that I'm taking. We are going to serve the Lord. We are not going to serve other gods. I'm not going to destroy my family. You shouldn't want to destroy your family. But the fact is, when we start to serve and worship and give our time and devotion and affection to idols... And, and giving our lives and our hearts away to other things and lesser things, the fact is, is that our life begins to deteriorate. It's not what we were created for. It's not who we were created for. And that's what Joshua wanted to remind them of. Think about the moment that you're in. Don't blow this. Don't mess this up. Don't go backwards. You need to go forwards. And that's, that's the key, right? It's that at every moment where we're facing the unfolding future, And we don't know what's about to happen. What we do know and what we can know, and we see this from Joshua's exhortation, and we know this from all the rest of the scripture, 
that as we stand at the beginning of the unfolding future, we know that if we follow God and we follow his word, life may not look perfect, um, humanly speaking, naturally speaking, but when we're in the center of God's will, we can be successful in whatever God desires and what God wants. Our life can have peace. We can have joy. We will not destroy our lineage. We will not give ourselves to lesser things. It will not deter our family down roads that we were not meant for. We will walk in the blessing of the Lord, what the blessing of the Lord actually means, because all we want is what pleases God. And Joshua so wanted the people of Israel to remember that, to to know that, to walk in that. In fact, he has a prophetic sense. He knows that they're actually going to fall away. He goes on to saying that in the next several verses, verse 16 and so on, he goes on to challenge them multiple times. He says, you do not walk in the, in the ways of the God of the gods of the Amorites or other gods in idolatry. And the people say in verse 16, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And now, so the people are saying this back to Joshua. They're like, we will not fall away. We will not go astray. We will will not do what many of our forefathers have done. We understand what you're saying, Joshua, and we're going to follow the Lord. And Joshua says to them in verse 19, you will not obey or you will not be able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins if you forsake him and serve foreign gods. In other words, he's not going to take away the consequences that are inevitable. Now listen, this weekend I'm preaching on Jonah chapter 1. We're going to follow verses 3. We're going into verse 4 to 8. And we're going to find that there are consequences to our decisions. And let's just remember that today. There are consequences to the decisions that we make. Joshua as a leader, as a father, as a husband, as a man of God, as a mediator in this moment between God and man, he's carrying a burden that he's trying to convey to the people. He's saying, if you do not follow God, the consequences are going to be unbearable. And don't we all want to know that before we step into foolishness, before we go down pathways of sin? See, consequences will befall us. It is inevitable. If we sow to the flesh, we will reap destruction. Joshua is saying the very same thing that we read about in Galatians chapter 6 just a week ago. If we, Whatever we sow will grow, right? It rhymes, but it's actually true. If we sow it, we will grow it and we will reap that harvest. Joshua with great burden is pleading with the people, do not go the way of idolatry. It's not what you want for you and it's not what you want for your children. Our children and our lives will be affected by the decisions that we make. Consequences are inevitable. That's for good and for evil. It does not mean that we will get everything that we want if we follow the Lord closely, but it does mean that we will be in the center of his will and what we experience internally will be ours and for our children, the peace of God, the joy of God, the mercy of God. We will be so close to him. We will feel his presence even in hard times. But when we're when we walk away and we, we fall astray, when that happens, it's really hard to locate the truth of God in those moments because we are so far from him. We're not detecting what his heart is. We're not sensing what is on his mind and what he's about and what he's doing. And that's not of his doing. That's of our doing. 
We start to get distorted. We start to get disillusioned. And this is just inevitable. And so he goes on to say that. And the stamp of Joshua 24 is very, very clear. We will serve the Lord. And when we get into Judges, we're going to see how serious that really was. That moment that Joshua had with Israel. It's so, so serious. Let's just park right here for a second and say the warnings of the Lord are so valuable to us. I don't know about you, but I don't love correction. I don't love warnings, but I am certainly grateful for them. Aren't you grateful for the warnings? I just think about the warning light um, in your car. You have an engine warning light. It's telling you something is wrong. Something could be wrong. And as a result of it being wrong or going wrong, you may not be able to drive your car like you once did. Yeah, right now we're driving. I shouldn't have done that. You know what I'm saying? You're driving the car. And you think everything's fine. And even though the light's on, sometimes we actually transgress that. We ignore that light and act like nothing's going to happen until the day that it does. The warning light was, was, it came on and it was given, not necessarily for that moment, but something's going to get worse if this doesn't get fixed. What about smoke alarms? Smoke alarms in our house. Yeah, I hate when the battery chirps because it's dead. I hate that too. But the fact is we need those smoke alarms or those those carbon monoxide detectors, we need those in our house because it detects when something could be going wrong. And even if it was a false alarm, I'm still grateful that it goes off because nobody wants to die. This is a real thing that we need. We need warnings. We need warning lights. We need yellow red lights on our, on our, out here so we can have traffic so we don't crash into each other. These things are very helpful, but how we interpret them are just as important. Do we see warnings? as a bad thing, or do we see it as the blessing that it is to keep us on the narrow path? It's like having those guardrails in on each side of the road. It keeps us on the straight and narrow path. Thank God for his warnings. Thank God for his warnings in scripture, and thank God that it keeps us in his blessings. What if the reality of the warnings of the word are to keep us in the blessings of the Lord? What if that's what it really is all about? It's that they are the guardrails to keep us on the road that has our life blessed, meaning happy and satisfied in him. That's what maybe we should take away today is that warnings are the guardrails that keep us in the blessings. Well, if you have your Bible, which I'm certain that you do, go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to end our time just looking at this letter. We're starting this letter today, and there's just a few chapters in this letter. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. We believe basically because of what we read about in chapter one that uh, that the apostle Paul was in, he was at Ephesus for about three years in one of his missionary journeys. And he leads this man named Epaphras to the Lord. Now church history tells us that Epaphras actually is the one that went to Colossae and brought the gospel there. And when he did, he started churches and those churches began to grow and they were primarily Gentile churches. Were there some Jewish people in those churches? Probably, but we know that it was primarily a Gentile church, which actually starts to make sense when you read it. And some of the things that we learn about this letter, basically in chapter one, is that the Apostle Paul, is he has he has known about some of the falsehood, the error, the false teachings that have permeated this church, many of the early churches. And Paul's writing this from prison. It is one of the prison epistles, and he wants to correct the falsehood that he's heard about that some in the church have been listening to that have been that have been believing. And so he's definitely 
primarily confronting that here in chapter one. And I'm going to go ahead and read what it says here. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned from it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he has also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfast and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints." in the light. Now here's the deal. Paul is the king of run-on sentences. Can we just say that real quickly? I mean, it's almost like you don't know where it begins or ends, okay? It doesn't make me feel so bad when I'm writing books because I've got these real long run-on sentences that get edited all the time. But the reality here is, is that Paul is the king of run-on sentences. That just makes me feel better to say that. I don't know how you feel. Anyways, something you learned real quickly in verse 9 is Paul says, I'm praying for you that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will. Two times in these couple verses right here, he talks to them about being filled with knowledge that would actually increase in wisdom. That wisdom would cause them to walk worthy. I want you to see the progression of that. Paul's actually going to confront what it is that they're believing. Now that basically is talking about their knowledge, what they know, what they believe. That leads us to wisdom, where we're, we're actually applying the knowledge. And that gives us discernment. That gives us the ability to walk out what is worthy of the calling for which we've received in Christ. Paul's concerned that their life is not in alignment with Jesus, his truth, his word, his ways. And so he's praying that they would actually have right, accurate, and true knowledge. Be sure of that, so that they would walk in wisdom. They would walk in worthiness as it is following Jesus Christ. So he's starting to tackle the false teaching by simply saying this is his prayer for them. And what we also read about here, starting in verse 13, he goes into saying, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, this chapter primarily is all about the supremacy of Christ. We are about to read that seriously. And the reason that he's actually about to target the person, the work, the supremacy of Christ is because some of the false teaching that they are hearing and some even believing in the early church in Colossae is that the deity of Jesus is is not real. Jesus was a man. Jesus did not have deity ascribed to him. That Jesus was born. He was not, he did not exist prior to his earthly birth. And so, humanly speaking, they recognize Jesus according to the flesh. But by the Spirit, the false teachers are taking away the fullness of the view of the supremacy of Christ. And so, Paul wants to restore that. And we go on to reading that because this is what he says. 
He is the image. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead, so that he, again, Jesus, will come to have first place in everything. For it is was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and that through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven." What does he say about Jesus? That Jesus is supreme over everything. He says Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Firstborn not meaning that Jesus was born and not existing prior to that, but he's talking about the firstborn in the rights and the privileges. He's speaking of firstborn in a cultural context, not necessarily theologically or in a context of which he was not prior to existing. That's not exactly what he means, but he's saying he was the firstborn in humanly speaking over all creation. He was the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the sustainer of all things. He is the head of the church, the beginning of all things, the firstborn from the dead. He carries the fullness of God the Father. He is the reconciler of the world. Jesus is supreme. Paul is knocking out any false teaching about Jesus that reduces him down to lesser than he actually is. And we would do well to preach, to believe, to continue to remind ourselves of the supremacy of Christ. That's what this is all about. Paul in prison wants to remind the people that are getting knocked by the winds and the waves of false teaching that Jesus is supreme. Jesus is the visible representation of the invisible God. He is the image of God. He is the firstborn over all creation. He is the sustainer of all things. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the head of the body of Christ again and again and again. He is talking about Jesus. We are talking about Jesus. Jesus reigns supreme. He was, he is, and he always will be. Then he goes into saying this in verse 24. We'll just drop down here to verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now this is a passage that scholars have debated for years, and when you read commentaries, you're going to get some different answers. The question you might ask is, What is lacking in Christ's afflictions? I mean, Christ's afflictions bring about the substitutionary atonement, right? Well, he's talking about that which, when Christ was afflicted, when Christ was beaten, he was spit upon, he was ridiculed, the crown of thorns was, all of that happened in the fulfillment of prophecy. But what we see is a humanity, an enmity with God. We see a humanity that is separated from God, that is wanting to rebel and be their own God. This is what we see in the physical, graphic picture of what human beings did to Jesus. And now Paul, in prison, been beaten, he's been ridiculed. He has gone through all of these things. He is saying, I make up in my body what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. In other words, I am actually participating in the sufferings of Christ 
for the same purpose which Jesus had, which was to reconcile all people to the Father through himself. Now, we, in giving our lives, certainly cannot reconcile people to the Father. We are not the substitutionary atonement, but our life, both in word and deed, speaks of and leads people to the the one that died, was buried, and rose again, that we actually reflect Jesus Christ in our life and in our death. And Paul is saying that he has the privilege as a fellow member of the body of Christ to make up what was lacking in his current context, that what he is suffering, he is not suffering in vain. He is actually pointing to Jesus. He's willing to go through what he's going through in order that Jesus might be exalted because he's worthy of it. And that's actually what he means. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul tells the Corinthian church kind of the same thing, that he is suffering, um, that he is experiencing the sufferings of Christ. He says it a handful of times. Why is he willing to do that? Well, for the same purpose that Jesus did it. Not because that we in of ourselves will actually bear that same fruit, but the fruit will point to the one that actually has the power to transfer us from darkness to light. As his body, we reflect him. And the way that we posture ourselves, the way that we suffer, actually points to Jesus. And maybe there's nothing better that we could say other than that. The way that we suffer points to Jesus. Don't waste your suffering. We cannot waste our suffering. Life will be difficult. We will have trials. We will have trouble. And we will have persecution. We are going to be persecuted for Christ. If we live out loud for Jesus, things are going to be said and things are going to be done. Some more than others. But let's be reminded today that the way that we suffer actually reveals Jesus Christ in our life. Is he real? How we live actually reveals how real he is. And that's something that Paul lived with in a very sober way. Well, he goes on to say something very powerful. He says, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we might present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which works mightily in me. He's talking about the mystery that was not um, was not revealed in past generations and time, but is made known to you. This is what he says. He says very clearly and explicitly that Christ in you is the hope of glory, that Jew and Gentile could come together. The Spirit of Christ lives in those who believe. And Paul wanted to make sure that what was once a mystery has now been revealed. And he actually got to have this sacred privilege of being a minister, stewarding this revelation, speaking of Christ, the supremacy of Christ. And for those that believe Christ, the Spirit of Christ lives inside of us. And that means that we can go about representing him pointing to him, talking about him, declaring him to men and women, young and old, everywhere. And this is the purpose for which he existed. This is the purpose for which we exist, is to make much of 
Jesus. That's what it's all about. We talk about this probably just every day. That's what the Bible points to. No matter where you cut the scripture, it bleeds red, the blood of Jesus Christ. From the beginning to the end, it is about Jesus. It is about the supremacy of Jesus. The Father exalts the Son. The Son is the King on his, over His kingdom, and we are subject to that. We are citizens of His kingdom. And He, the hope, of, the hope of glory, the Spirit of Christ, lives within us. It is not a mystery. It is not a mystery. Once long ago it was, but now it is revealed. And this is so profoundly powerful, and what a privilege it is that Jesus is not just trying to comfort us, but Jesus dwells within us. Jesus wants to manifest through us. All we do is yield. All we do is yield. We have this revelation of how great God is and how serious this whole thing is that he didn't die just to make us all feel a little better. He died to dwell in us, that he wants to be one with us. He wants to be this close to us. He is the head. We are the body. And we're right, rightly reconciled to our Heavenly Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. We're a family, and that's what this is all about. Are we living in a way that reveals the family relationship that Jesus died for? That's what we can think about today. Are we allowing lesser things, idolatry, idols, our affections to be given over to other things, lesser things, or are we revealing the supremacy of Christ in the way that we live? Here's what I want to pray today. I want to pray that God would help us to live in keeping with what Jesus died for, with what Paul labored to continue to keep people focused on. Let's pray that today for each one of us as we enter into the rest of our day. There's nothing, I think, nothing greater we could focus on and pray for than that. So Father, we do thank you today for your word. And God, we ask you in Jesus' mighty name that you would help us to keep Jesus at the center of our focus, help, help us to keep Jesus at the center of our day, that, Lord, we declare you are supreme over all things. And, Lord, where we have given our hearts to lesser things, we right now, we repent in Jesus' name. And we pray, God, that you would help us to see you in fuller view, the beauty of Christ. We ask you, Lord, that you would reveal things that have taken our attention and our affection. And we simply right now give them over to you. I pray for everyone watching this. I ask, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, speak to our minds, that you would encourage us, that you would, God, that you would convict us. We thank you for the warnings in your word that keep us in the blessings that you have. And that's where we want to stay and that's where we want to remain. Help us to make much of Jesus, especially in these days. May we do it for your glory in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.